Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to be finishing up this chapter. Um, Paul's rounding out uh, the importance of the resurrection, but he does something um, profound in this section. He orients the resurrection inside of a day, and uh, we'll talk more about that here shortly. But read with me, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. This is God's word. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for giving it to us by your spirit. Thank you, Lord, that it meets us where we are, and at times it stretches us. Other times, Lord, it comforts us. At other times, Lord, it convicts us. And this is because uh, it's from you, and it will do what you intend for every single person in this room. Father, I pray that the, the reading and preaching of your word is not for the hardening of hearts. And I do ask for your spirit to be at work, to soften, and to make our hearts tender, that we might receive the implanted word of God, and that it might sprout up and bear much fruit, anchoring our bodies and our souls even now as we wait. And so, Lord, forgive me my sins, and forgive the sins of your hearers, and allow us to be hearers and doers of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when was the last time that you were absolutely excited about uh, a day that was on your calendar? And uh, I know a few of you are engaged and I've talked to some of you and you're counting down the day of your wedding and you can't not talk about it. Like it is occupying a significant portion of your brain and of your behavior right now. But uh, we, we look forward to other days other than weddings. We look forward to the birth of children with anticipation. Maybe you're getting a new job or, or maybe you're getting a promotion or, or, or maybe there's this vacation that's out on the future and you can taste the food that you'll be eating. You can see the sights of the places that you'll be traveling or, or maybe it's the release of a new shoe or I don't know, or maybe it's Christmas, right? that we all sort of live with this anticipation and longing of a new day or something on the calendar. 
I want to draw your attention to, to Paul. This is not foreign to him that, that Paul uh, longed for a day that he can't stop talking about this day when you actually read 1 Corinthians, that he can't get two sentences in the book without mentioning this day, and he can't end the book without mentioning this day, and then it, it, it's mentioned all in the middle of the book. And so during this week, I, I went back just to go reread 1 Corinthians, and I try to read it sort of in one setting, and um, man, this, it just popped out off the scriptures that, that notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 7 through 8. He says, you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will sustain you until the end, guiltless. And here it is, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's right there. The book just starts and he's already talking about the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how the book ends right there in chapter 16. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be a curse. And notice what he says. Our Lord come. The word there is Maranatha. So he ends the book thinking about the day that Jesus returns. And then all through the book, he's always talking about the return of Jesus. He writes this. Everyone's work will become manifest for that day will disclose it. What day is he talking about? The return of Jesus. Chapter four, verse five, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will then bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. Okay, church discipline in chapter five, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved when? In the day of the Lord, right? Chapter six, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Well, when? In the day of the Lord. Chapter seven, do you not know that those who marry will have worldly troubles? I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown short. This present form of the world is passing away. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns again. You catch it? Even the chapter on love. He says the day is coming where prophecies will pass and tongues will pass. But love will endure forever. That when you study the book, you realize that, that Paul had a day. That he loved. That he longed for that he thought about all the time, that he was anxious to see it happen, that he prayed that it would come. And beloved, if this day is important to Paul, it should be important to us. And here's what I wanna show you this morning. I wanna show you that, there, that this day is coming, this great getting up morning, this day of the Lord, it's coming. And then I want to want to show you what blessings will that day bring for God's people? And by inference, what curses will it bring for those who are not his people? And then thirdly, we'll look at how does that future day orient my life right now? Right. So we're not to just look and wait on the day. But if we truly believe that day is coming, then it breaks into our here and now and it changes how we behave.
and how we live. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning. The first thing is that great getting up morning, that day of the Lord, saints, it's coming. Now, Paul ends chapter 15, which is on the resurrection, by orienting it inside of the day that it will take place. And it's as if Paul is saying, if you say there is no resurrection, then what you're actually saying is Jesus isn't returning. That's kind of what you're saying. If you say there is no resurrection, then the day that the resurrection is going to happen cannot exist, right? And so Paul is like pressing them in on the significance of that future day. Now, here's a question. Is Paul being extra? Is he being excessive? Is his theology the exception? Or is his theology around the return of Jesus the norm? Now, it's the norm. Saints of old through every age have always looked at time as moving towards a day where Jesus returns. Now, how do we know that? Let's go to John 11. And I'll go to a, a few places and I'll come to this text and show you why I think that's what Paul is stretching us on. John 11, Lazarus dies. Jesus loves Lazarus. Jesus chooses to wait until Lazarus has died before he goes to the tomb. And when he shows up, right, Martha runs out. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. For we know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. And then Jesus asks her, will he live again? And she said, he will live again. He will be raised on the last day. Now, Jesus tells her, I'm the resurrection and the life. But notice what she professes. She professes that there is a day. There is a day in the future when the dead will be raised. And it's the last day of time as we know it. So this is Martha, a, a Jewish woman who believes in a future day of the Lord. Well, go back to Genesis chapter 50. Joseph is in Egypt. He's 110 years old. And before he dies, he says, family, promise me you'll take my bones out of Egypt when the Lord shows up. And then Joseph died and he was buried. 400 years later, when Moses was raised up, and God led them out of Egypt. Do you want to know what Moses went back and got? He got his bones. Now think about that. For 400 years, generation after generation after generation, they've been told, when we leave, we got to grab these bones. When we leave, we got to grab these bones. And the author of Hebrews says that by faith, Joseph believed in the exodus. But here's what R.C. Sproul says. He says, Joseph was not just believing in the literal exodus out of Egypt. He was believing in the ultimate exodus when Joseph's bones, he will be raised in the land of promise around God's people on the last day. Think about Job. And you know the story of Job. Job's tormented. And in the midst of losing everything, you know what he says? 
He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand on the earth. And even after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. That's, that, that's Job saying, I may lose everything, but I know a day is coming when my Redeemer will stand and I will be resurrected and I will see him with these eyes and my heart will leap for joy. Now, what does Martha and, and Job and Joseph, why are they all saying these things? It's because their lives have been oriented around a future day. That good old getting up morning. That day of Jesus' return. All roads, all calendars lead there. Now, how do we know that's what Paul is talking about? Because notice what Paul says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed when in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound. Right. So that's your clue, because over in First Thessalonians chapter four, Paul says this. He says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. That day will come like a thief. Here's what Paul is saying, saints. That trumpet right there that emanates from heaven, that is heard around the world in Iraq, in Corinth, Mississippi, in Jackson, Mississippi, in Asia, in Australia, the dead will even hear it. When will that trumpet? sound come on the last day. In fact, you could ask when of every single thing happening here, when will we be changed on the last day? When will the dead be raised imperishable on that day of the Lord? When will this mortal body put on morta immortality on that day of the Lord? When will death be swallowed up? It's not swallowed up now, saints. We still die. But it will happen in the future. The answer to all of this is on the day of the Lord. Beloved, Christians of old had their sights on that day. Christians of old heard trumpets and said, could that be the trumpet of God? Christians of old went into the grave believing that they would be raised on the last day. Here's a question for you. Do you wake up and wonder, is this the day? Is this the day? Do, do, do you wake up and, and start your day longing for th this might be the day where King Jesus returns in glory? And see, my guess is that our culture and our own hearts, that, that we kind of forget that. We get so situated like right here with things to do and jobs to have and kids to raise and dreams to chase that we actually forget that there is a day in the future when King Jesus is returning. 
And what passages like this should do, it should lift our eyes up. He's coming. He's returning. And our world will deny that. It will distort that. It will busy us to death so that we don't see that. And what passages like this do, they remind us, be not those who are asleep and who are caught off guard because he will return like a thief in the night. Be like those looking out of the window, ready, come back. You see, Mahalia Jackson sang a song that great getting up morning, and she had her eyes on that day. She says, that great getting up morning, fare ye well, fare ye well. Well, in that great getting up morning, fare ye well. Let me tell you about the coming of judgment, fare ye well, fare ye well. God gonna speak to Gabriel, fare ye well, fare ye well. Gabriel, pick up your silver trumpet, fare ye well, fare ye well. Blow your trumpet, Gabriel. Fare ye well, fare ye well. Lord, how loud should I blow it? Fare ye well, fare ye well. Oh, to wake my cheering, sleeping. Fare ye well, fare ye well. They be coming from every nation. Fare ye well, fare ye well. On their way to the great carnation. Fare ye well, fare ye well. Singing, oh, I've been redeemed. Fare ye well, fare ye well. You hear that song? Here's the question. Who does the day fare well for? It's not going to fare well for everybody. Which moves us to our second point. This great day for some will be great. And for others, it will be terrifying. Now, I know you might be thinking, okay, how is that true? Here's a question. Can one day evoke two different responses from people? Right? So, low-hanging fruit, no secret. I still think Michael Jordan is one of the best, best athletes, period. But there's uh, a shot that he made that is affectionately called the shot. And it was 1989, and the Bulls were playing the Cavaliers. And they were down by one point. And Michael Jordan gets the ball passed to him. He fakes right, goes left, and then he elevates. And Craig Elo is in front of him, trying to defend him. And he keeps elevating. And he shoots the ball. And as the time runs out, he makes the basket. And then you see Michael Jordan run and he jumps in the air and he's punching the air. And then you see all of his teammates kind of run at him and they're coronating him. They're celebrating. And then in the background, guess what you see? You see Craig Elo. And he looks up and he sees his shot goes in and he falls on his face in agony. What a juxtaposition. The Bulls are celebrating while the Cavaliers are sorrowful. Make no mistake about it, saints. When Jesus returns, it's going to be like that. 
that, that, that we're going to rally around him not to be picked up. We're going to rally around him and champion him and crown him and rejoice with him. And over in the background will be everyone on their knees who pierced him, who rejected him on their knees in sorrow and sadness will be the world that hates him. That this one day is going to bring out two totally different responses. And that's what you see in the text. Now, how do we know it's in the text? It's in the opening words. Notice what Paul says. He says, brothers and sisters, I, I tell you this, your father in the faith, I tell you this, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit what is imperishable. Now, the, the key word there is inherit. He doesn't say receive. He says inherit. Now, when you think about an inheritance, what is it? It is a gift given to you by a family member on account of a death. And what he's saying is this, that if we are still flesh and blood, that if we have not been born again, then there is no inheritance for us. You catch that? He says, you can't get it. That'll be like me dying with something and I give it to strangers and not my own kids. Who does that? Inheritance implies familial connection. It implies a death has taken place. We believe we have been born again from above. We believe that we are not just flesh and blood, but we are indwelled by the spirit of God. We believe that we are united to God as father through the work of the son. And therefore, though we die, we shall live forever. Though we die, there is an inheritance that is being kept for us and guarded for us until the day of Christ Jesus. But if we are not believers, we have no share in what's coming. You catch that? And Jesus speaks about this. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. That which is of the flesh is of the flesh. And that which is of the spirit is the spirit. You must be born by the spirit. You see Jesus telling Peter this, who do they say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of God. And then what does Jesus say? Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. My father in heaven revealed that to you. And so Jesus himself is drawing a line in the sand. If you're in me, then you have inheritance. If you're in me, you have my spirit. If you're in me, you are family. And if you're not in me, you don't get to inherit the kingdom that is being prepared. That's why Paul says, I tell you this, you can't receive it. There will be a great divide. Which moves us to our second point. What are the great blessings on that day for God's people? Notice what Paul says. He says, I tell you a mystery. And mystery here does not mean a riddle that, we, that he's solving for us. Rather, it's some hidden aspect of a truth that God had not announced that he is now bringing light or bringing us into it. Well, what is the mystery? He says that when Jesus returns... Not all of us will be sleep, and that sleep is, is cold word for dead. Not all of us will be deceased, but even the ones who are alive, we shall be changed. 
For in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, some of us, that, that you will blink. And when your eye closes, before it opens up well, just like that, that fast, Jesus will be, will be back. In other words, what he's saying is you can't get ready. You got to be ready. It's going to happen really fast. And in the moment, we will be changed. And those who are dead, when they hear that trumpet, they will be raised from the grave and they will be transformed. And, and, and then if we who are alive, when he returns, we will wait our turn and watch them be resurrected. And then something is going to happen to us instantaneously. What does he say? We will put on the imperishable. We will put on the immortal. It's the image of clothing, right? I don't know what your theology is kind of around what's going to happen to our bodies when Jesus returns. But Paul twice says, we will, what is that? Okay, let me, that's a dryer sheet. Thank you, love. <laughs> I saw some hanging. It's, it's, a, it's a dryer sheet. Here it is, right? I forgot where I was. <laughs> oh, yeah. When we return. I don't know what your theology is around the body. I always kind of thought that I'll just kind of phase or shift or I don't know. But Paul uses language that will put on immortality. That Jesus himself will put something on us and transform us from the outside in. And that's going to happen on that day. On that day, one of God's greatest blessings for you is you will be made invincible. That you will be made fit for glory. That you will become beautifully glorified. That your body will be made weighty. That you might dwell in the presence of God and in the weighty place of the new heavens and the new earth forever. And guess what? That's a gift. That's a blessing. But that's not the only thing that's going to happen on that day. Something else Paul mentions will happen on that day. That something will finally and fully be swallowed up. And it's death. On that day, death will die. The day of death, death is the day of the Lord. And notice the reference here. Death is swallowed up in victory. That's a quote from Isaiah 25. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your plagues or your sting? That's a quote from Hosea 13. But think about Isaiah 25, where, this, where that quote comes from. Let me paint the scene for you. Isaiah 25 is the scene from the mountain. The Lord will gather his people to his mountain and mountains signify safety and security, but also dwelling with God on mountain. And it says that the Lord himself will prepare a feast, a feast of fine wine, well aged wine and choice meats, even with the rich marrow of bones. Think about this. This is like this feast that's going to be the best meal you ever have because God himself is the chef. And then there's this wordplay in, in that chapter that it reads as if we will eat and we will feast 
But then God's going to go eat something. Notice what the text says in Isaiah right after it says that we will feast and he will then swallow up the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from their faces. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Do you catch the imagery? We're going to eat. And then God's going to get up and says, hey, I got something to drink. I got something to go digest. And I got the antibodies. And I'm going to go and drink death forever. I'm going to consume it. And then I'll come back and wipe away all your tears. Can you wait? G.K. Bill puts it this way. On that day, God himself will gobble up death. We're not the only ones eating on that day. God's going to eat it up forever. Can you wait? There's a day coming where Kleenex will go out of business, y'all. There's a day coming. If mortuary sciences is your major, you got to get a new degree. There's a day coming where if burying people is your way of living, you got to develop a new skill because what Jesus will do is bring an end to all death and all dying and all things that move us to die. But that's not it. He gives this reference to Hosea that, you know, the book of Hosea, they go after their idols, after their idols, after their idols. And then the Lord says, oh, I will ransom them from death. Oh, death, where is your place? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Now it makes sense that death is a punishment for sin. And sin is agitated and aggravated by the law so that we become exceedingly, exceedingly sinful. But someone came who lived a perfect life, namely Jesus, and then he died in our place and he drank the cup of God's wrath. And that same Jesus is returning to drink death up forever. But we live here now and we can't sing that song yet, can we? Because people still die. And so it's kind of like a song that is written, but we can't sing it yet. But on that day, then this shall come to pass. Then we can sing it. It'll be our anthem. So Stevie Wonder wrote, isn't she lovely? And growing up, I thought that was about a woman. Did anybody think it was about a woman other than me? Oh, I see a few people, right? <laughs> It's really about his daughter named Aisha, and he says it in the songs. So I don't know how I didn't get this, right? But Stevie Wonder, isn't she lovely, right? You know that? Here's, ah, you don't want to hear me sing, Candace. <laughs> Here's the thing, Stevie Wonder couldn't see. And so what kind of loveliness is he talking about? It's ironic, isn't it? It's a loveliness that is the image of God. I can't see her, but she's beautiful. But, but, but some say that Stevie Wonder didn't wait to write that song when she was born. 
that he's had other records. That some have said that, that Stevie, when he found out that, that they're going to have a child, that he already put it in his mind, oh, I have to write a song, I have to write a song. And then when she is born, that's her voice you hear on the song. And so here's the thing. He wrote the song more than likely before she got here, but you can't sing it until she comes because you want her voice on it. Saints, do you know that Isaiah and Hosea remind us that God has written a song and we can't fully sing it yet? But when Jesus returns, that's going to be our anthem. Death, you have been swallowed up. Death, there is no sting. Death, it is no more. In Jesus, we now have the full measure of victory. Now, those are two gifts that are ours for those who know and love Jesus. And if you don't know and love Jesus, those gifts aren't yours. Resurrection will happen to everyone. Paul says it in the passage, we will all be raised. We will all get new bodies. But if you don't know Jesus, your body will be co-signed to judgment forever. And it will never burn up. And you will long to die. And God will not allow you to die. And you will not get this new glorified body that can dwell in the presence of the Almighty forever. And so this passage is a warning to bow the knee to Jesus now. Which moves us to our last point, saints. We have great security as we go about God's great work. Much of what Paul talks about here is oriented towards the future. When will the trumpet be blown? In the future. When will death be swallowed up completely? In the future. When will, we be, will be, when will we be clothed with immortality? In the future. But notice the shift. And you see it right there in 57 and 58. God gives us victory now through Jesus. So we have a measure of it now. But then notice how he finishes this chapter, therefore. And so when you see therefore, what Paul is doing, he's saying, in light of everything I've taught you, in light of the day that's coming, in light of the new body that you're going to get, in light of the return of Jesus, in light of all of this, therefore, live this way. In other words, he's saying that future day has implications now. And so what do we have now? What are we called to do now, knowing that Jesus will return in the future and that he has redeemed us in the past? What difference does that make right now? Well, he tells us you can be steadfast and you can be immovable. That when you bury your wife. Who's in the Lord, you can be immovable. She'll live again. When you lose a child, when you see suffering, when you get a bad diagnosis from the doctor, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and you're afraid, 
all these things can kind of move us and push us and, and, and make us miss out on hope. But what Paul is actually saying is when we get the gospel and the fullness of the gospel, no matter what comes our way, we can stand knowing that he is coming to make all things new. That has implications now, not just in the future. Right now. And then he goes on to talk about the work. Look at what he says. He says, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. You catch that? That the coming of Jesus in the future, it is not just for our comfort right now. It, do, it is. It's also to be the engine that drives expending ourselves in the kingdom of God. That we're to make our own calling and election sure. We're to share the good news with people who are still flesh and blood. We're to give of our time and talent and resources we're to share the good news with the lost. We're to pray. We're to use our spiritual gifts that he just talked about to build up the church. In other words, this whole letter, the whole letter is about doing the work of the Lord until the work, until the Lord returns, empowered by the Spirit, because we're new in light of his future return. This should compel us to be about the work of the Lord because he's coming back. If you don't know Jesus, may today be the day that you bow. If you are in Jesus, may today be a day that you long for that future, that you experience the immovability that we have in Christ, that we're anchored, and that you begin to say, Lord, how do I not squander my life? How do I not squander my gifts? How do I use them in the service of you and your kingdom? Help me do it right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. And thank you, Lord, that all time is marching to your beat. Our clocks count up, but the clock of heaven counts down. Down to the day where you will blow the trumpet or have an angel blow it. And Jesus will descend. And we will be with him forever and ever. Prepare us for that day. Make us long for it, pray for it, labor for it, and rest in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.